You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast. I'm your host, John Gordon. And I got a very special guest, um, a man who was part of what I consider to be the best team of outdoor writers in newspaper history. And it's no exaggeration. And I, I was fortunate enough to grow up in the Houston, Texas area when the Houston Chronicle really put the outdoors as a priority because it was such a hunting and fishing culture around the city that they knew that their readership you know, really loved the outdoors and really loved to read about it and all the stories that came from all around the city and the bays and, you know, from Galveston to west to Matagorda and Rockport and everything else. So my guest today is one of those people who was part of that team. Welcome, Shannon Tompkins, to the DU Podcast. Good morning, John. How are you? Man, I'm fantastic. Shannon, uh, so glad to have you on. I just, I love talking about the Houston area history. You know, I, I, I did... Um, a podcast with a mutual friend of ours, Rob Sawyer, you know, wrote that uh, 100 mm-hmm. Years of Texas Waterfowling book, one of the, you know, really the definitive work on, you know, a lot of the Texas waterfowling history. It is. And because, you know, you're also friends with him, we, we met up at Spread Oaks Ranch and had, you know, I think immediate connection 
you know, uh, because we both love this stuff so much. And I thought, you know, when we did kind of a high-level overview with Rob. So let's dive into it deep with Shannon Tompkins, a man who lived it. He was right in the middle of it, of the of the east side of Houston. And for for the listeners, Shannon, define the east side of Houston and, and, and where we're talking about. Well, it, basically between uh, Houston and the Louisiana border on the Sabine River, it's probably about a 100-mile, 120-mile stretch, basically from oh, Galveston Bay to the Sabine, Sabine Lake border. Just uh, it's, it's kind of a confluence of several different ecosystems of piney woods, uh, the freshwater marshes, saltwater marshes, uh, river mouths, Bays. It's the country between, well, Chambers County, Jefferson County, Liberty County, you know, just uh, east of Houston. Right, right. And we talked about that before as, you know, reason why there were so many ducks and geese there was was that real habitat diversity. You you had everything a duck or goose would ever need in that area. So they came there by the, well, by the millions, really, at the heyday. Exactly. It was, it's a traditional major traditional wintering area exactly exactly located next to one of the largest cities in america and that's something also that's kind of fascinating of houston texas and its role in this once again but from the east to the west side uh, there's really no other city like it i think in my estimation waterfowling history that that has so many characters and so much habitat around it um and uh Give the listeners an idea of why the city of Houston really grew into what it is now, the fourth largest city in America. Yeah, Houston's kind of kind of unique. It's it sits right on the edge of like three or four different ecosystems. It's uh, uh, like you said, it's the fourth largest city in the U.S. Seven. There's a little more than seven and a half million people there right now, which is to give people some perspective. That's the population of Louisiana and Mississippi in uh, in that one that that one concentration, but it was uh, it just serendipity. Uh, that's where all the rail lines came together back in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds, and that's oil came in in the nineteen hundreds, and Houston just grew, and it's uh, it's the fourth largest city, got uh, one of the biggest ports in the country, and it's uh, just. An incredibly big area. It's the truth, man. You know, I, I growing up in on the on the east side in Kingwood, um, you know, I've watched the city explode over the last two decades to where you know places like Cleveland, Texas, and New Caney and Porter and stuff like that were were in the middle of nowhere in the country, and the, the city has completely swallowed them up now. At this point, exactly. I I grew up in in Baytown. Uh, which is probably, I don't know, 60 miles, 50, 60 miles east of downtown Houston. It was a little city of about 18,000 people. Houston might as well have been the other side of the world when, when I grew up there. And it, I just happened to grow up in a, a town that was consumed with waterfowl. <laughs> Because we're in the perfect spot. Yeah, there's some real characters, you know, that we're going to get into that that we're all from Baytown. And a lot of me, because, I mean, Baytown was an oil town. Am I correct? I mean, a refinery town. I mean, that's what really drew everybody there. Uh, It was work. And it was was the jobs. Humble Oil, I believe, which became Exxon later on. Is really built Baytown. I think right. in, in 19, 1917, I believe it was right. the date that, that that everybody recognizes as the forming of Baytown as a company right. town. And right. so, you, a lot of these folks who were uh, guides, outfitters, and everything all started out in the oil industry. 
a lot of them did, but a lot of them were from the just the, the old families uh, around Baytown that uh, and and the surrounding areas that uh, you know just old old farming and ranching communities is uh, where a lot of those folks came from, and that's where their history is from. Right, right. I'm just going to say some you know names of of some different locations, and and you give me some thoughts about about you know their history and and what they meant to you know waterfowling in in that area um uh the jackson ranch jackson ranch was one of the biggest in chambers county chambers county is kind of an interesting place so we, we talked before i'm not sure if it's still true now but there used to be more alligators in chambers county than people but uh it yeah, was an fact <laughs> and it, and it's the county right next to harris which is what houston's in right. so that's kind of that's kind of interesting but uh you know the jackson ranch the jk ranch is what it was the back in the day uh one of the biggest ranches in in uh in chambers county it was uh all those ranches the jackson the barra the white the maize the uh all those ranches started out as cattle ranches back in as far back as the 1820s so uh you know the jackson ranch was one of the biggest biggest ones it was a combination of coastal prairie uh you know uh, freshwater and then intermediate marsh and uh and uh piney woods uh it was just a uh, all these different uh you know ecosystems came together and they were is very good for cattle raising and really good for waterfowl and some real characters jackson okay. family you know <laughs> I mean, anybody named Elmer Crackhorn Jackson is uh, that you just immediately think, man, uh, what's that guy's story? Yeah, uh, Crackhorn was uh, about my grandfather's age, so I'm saying, I'm guessing he was probably born around you know 1905, somewhere right in there. Part of the Jackson family. Crack was one of the best cowboys I ever knew in my life. But he was also a guide, and he guided on the Bear Ranch, guided, guided on the Jackson Ranch, but he guided for Joe to go on the Bear Ranch, and he and Joe were just best of friends, and Crack was probably one of the best shots and one of the best men I ever do in my life. Grew up on a horse and in the marsh, and I can't think of a better way to grow up. Oh, man, it's, it's incredible, and I know his, his nephew Rufus was also somebody you were close to. Right. Rufus was his nephew. Uh, I guided on the Bear Ranch back in the uh, early mid-70s for a few years, and uh, Rufus and I worked together a lot, and uh, I learned a ton from those guys, uh, just as I did from just everybody I was around over there. I got you. I got you. All right. So here's a place that you just mentioned, uh, too, as well, and you know, to give people perspective of, of what the Bear Ranch meant to Eastside waterfowling. Uh Numbers I got from Rob's book in 1979, 20,000 hunters came through the gates, uh, taking over 19,000 geese and 18,000 ducks. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that you know, and, and uh, Ralph Barrow and then later, of course, Joe uh, Legault, and we're going to get into those people uh, in more in depth. But uh, they offered, you know, people a place to hunt at a, at a reasonable price and, 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 and some of the most incredibly, you know, great hunting land in the history of the U.S., was down there in those marshes uh, as far as waterfowling went. So, you know, the Barrow Ranch is, you know, firmly cemented as one of the, you know, the great historical places in that area. So, you know, just just give us a little Barrow Ranch history, Shannon, if you will. Well, the Barrow Ranch was uh, adjacent to the Jackson Ranch, kind of on uh, 
in Chambers County, right at the back end of East Bay, East Galveston Bay. It was probably about, uh, the the area that was hunted was about 25,000 acres. It was, uh, it was a combination of, of coastal prairie, rice fields, a lot of rice back then, uh, some freshwater marsh and an intermediate marsh, and it was open to the public. I think that started back in, I'm, I want to say, the 20s with Ralph Barra. Yeah, once again, according to, to, to Rob's book, 1928. Yeah, it was it was open to the public for, for a day fee. I think it started out at like a couple of bucks a day or yeah, something $2. like that. Folks would uh, you know line up outside the gate uh, off the farm to market road to pay their $2, and uh, the ranch was open to them. And, you know, you could... You could hunt the rice fields, you could hunt the marsh, and the marsh at Bear Ranch was legendary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I experienced it, man, as a kid, and um, it's really hard to describe to people, I think, what that marsh was like. Right. I mean, sinking up to your knees might be uh, right. a kind term for it. I mean, you could, I, I mean, I could see where you could just get lost and never get come back out of there. Well, it, you know, and a lot of people did, uh, you know, prior to, to, to when I started hunting there in, in the late 60s, that whole marsh was that whole... Uh, all the wetlands from the freshwater. It was kind of like Neapolitan ice cream. You had freshwater, then going to intermediate, then going to salt marsh. But it was all covered in sea cane. So that made it even more of a maze for people. Yeah, that cane was all over the place, you know, and I can remember from the early 80s. Right. Well, and uh, people used to get lost in there. Uh, But, yeah, it it was just a wonderland for for waterfowlers because you had an incredible amount of habitat, uh, access to it for a reasonable rate, and, uh, and you know, you were left to your own devices uh, for the most part. Now, there were a handful of guides that, uh, that would take people, but uh, it was one of those places where it was kind of like a lot of public areas. Now, there really were no public areas in Texas uh, right. uh, for, for a long time. So places like the, the Bear Ranch, the Pipkin Ranch, to a lesser extent, the Jackson Ranch and some of the other ones, uh, gave the public access to some of the best waterfowling in, in, in Texas. And uh, I can remember opening day at the Bear Ranch for would have been somewhere in the mid 70s where 500 people went into that ranch on opening day yeah yeah and it, it but it's not a situation like you you run into public land here in this area where everybody's on top of each other the place was so big right that you could really that was you know 500 people and not 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 overly crowded on, by any means on 25,000 acres right you now so but yeah it was uh you know, it was pretty famous uh, in Texas and, and, and drew just a lot of people from the Houston area to the east side. That's where a lot of people from uh, from Houston got their baptism under fire. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, once again, experiencing that marsh firsthand, I'm glad I did because it really, it really gave me an idea of, uh, you know, the kind of work that it was going to take to become a really skilled waterfowl hunter. And, you know, I wasn't swayed by it. Right. And I think that was a big thing because I think it was a lot of people that probably ended up down there, never went back, you know, duck hunting, just thinking, man, that's too much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and yeah, I thought that a few times myself. And a lot of the barrel, well, at least uh, a big part of the barrel ranch uh, today is Anahuac National Wildlife Refuge. Right. Uh, down there. So it's still the same marsh country that it was. 
Right, and and it's still open for public waterfowling, parts exactly. of it. Right. And uh, the same thing with the Jackson Ranch. Portions, uh, a large part of the Jackson Ranch was the original uh, tract for the uh, Anahuac Wildlife Refuge. And, and that's what's happened to a lot of those historic ranches on that side of the of on the east side of Houston from the you know from the Jackson to the Barra to the McFadden Ranch right and that became Sea Rim State Park am I correct well it became uh, McFadden National Wildlife Refuge right. parts parts of all that country over there in Jefferson County became you know Sea Rim State Park Texas Point Wildlife Refuge uh the uh, JD Murphy Wildlife Management Area a lot of that's stuff on the east side of Houston is uh, is now uh, basically protected, uh, a lot of it. And then you have the Wallaceville Project, which is owned by the Corps of Engineers, which is the mouth of the Trinity River, uh, which is a completely different world. Yeah, and that's something I'm going to talk about, too, the Trinity River Bottoms, because it's more like Mississippi, Arkansas type, you know, flooded timber lakes uh, versus the marsh country. So that that's really created, a, a, like I said, a, a really diverse habitat base. Well, that was the thing about the east side of Houston is you had, uh, particularly living where I did, I was within 20 miles of some of the best timber hunting in the in the state. The largest cypress swamp wholly in Texas is it is is along the Lower Trinity River. So it's a lot like a lot of it's a lot like the Delta, uh, the Mississippi Delta country, and, and a very very similar culture in there and then 10 miles away you switch to the coastal prairie and and the marshes and that's a completely different type of waterfowling and and completely different culture uh you had all of that within a hundred mile range you had this incredible diversity and not just that but you had the mouth of the delta the delta of the trinity river which is incredible freshwater marshes and then you had the spoil banks and sandbars at the mouth of the river which would just draw tons and tons of geese uh so you, you had all of this uh, it, it was just you know pick the way you like to waterfowl and you could do it that's it so you're saying growing up in baytown it opened up a waterfowl wonderland to you pretty much well it was it, it did and it was it was just a, an ingrained culture in that town at the time i was surrounded by People, <laughs> yeah. people who loved a waterfowl hunt. It was at, at every turn were were incredible waterfowl hunters, and a lot of those those folks would share their their knowledge and their their time with 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 young kids like me and and, and a bunch of other folks who ended up becoming uh, you know waterfowl guides over there, and it, it was a uh, interesting to. I don't think there's any concentration in any town in Texas uh, of more waterfowl guides or, or or folks tied to waterfowl than than, than in Baytown. I mean, uh, from decoy carving to duck calls to 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 just uh, you know legendary duck hunters came from that town. Yeah, exactly. And, and surroundings. Exactly. One one last location I want to talk about. Is, is really famous from the market hunting era is Lake Surprise. Tell us about that. Lake Surprise is down in Chambers County. It's one of actually about four or five uh, big freshwater natural lakes in the marsh in Chambers County. 
Lake Surprise, probably the biggest and obviously the most famous one. It was, it held incredible numbers of, of canvasbacks. It was one of the top canvasback spots, the top one in Texas, along with Hines Bay farther down the coast. But it was also the site of, uh, you know, uh, market hunting really got its start in Texas, in the Lake Surprise area, because of the demand for canvasbacks. Uh, it was covered with eel grass. Colonel Moody of Galveston, fame, uh, actually bought it, built a commercial gunning operation on it. They would ship canvasbacks from, from Lake Surprise to New York, to London, to Chicago, to St. Louis. Uh, it was it was the premier canvasback in, in the state and uh, generated some really interesting characters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, uh, you know, people equate market gunning for cans, especially with the Chesapeake Bay, but Lake Surprise right. in that area down there was just as, as prevalent and he may have had more canvasbacks than Chesapeake did. Right. They, uh, I, 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 Somewhere I've got the numbers uh, about how many they would ship a year, but uh, in the late 1800s, they were shipping tens of thousands of, of canvasbacks out of Texas. Yeah, and it's just, uh, you know, of course, the canvasback today is is not a duck that has big numbers. A lot of it is, I mean, you know, the the fact that the, the East Coast restaurants, you know, served them as, you know, one of their great delicacies. Uh, didn't do the can any favors, you know, and I know it, it from a DU standpoint at Ducks Unlimited, we, we've done a lot of work, you know, to, to try to help bring the camps back populations, you know, to their former glory days. Hasn't happened yet, but, you know, there's always hope that they're going to really be able to catch hold again. Well, at least they're holding their own and, and increasing a little bit, and uh, it's really good to see them. Uh, there's still, you know, a fair number around down here. Not anything like back then, but uh, uh, a lot of things have changed. your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. 
Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside. And we're back, folks, with the DU Podcast. Our guest today, Shannon Tompkins, former outdoor writer and journalist for the Houston Chronicle. How long did you work at the paper, Shannon? I was a newspaper reporter for about or for, for 40 years. I worked at worked at oh, the Houston Post, the Beaumont Enterprise, and worked for about, the, I guess it was 30 years at the, at the Houston Chronicle. Man, you, you saw a lot. In that time frame, forty years of reporting. It was an interesting time, uh, and, and and there I saw a lot of changes. Got a chance to see some incredible things. Work with some wonderful people. To see, yeah, just uh, luckiest guy in the world to to have been able to do that and, and to have had that uh, that opportunity. Yeah, and I, I certainly enjoyed reading your stuff in those days. It uh, it, it it it's quality. Quality stuff, man. Uh, okay, now we're gonna you know kind of switch gears a bit from from places, locations uh, that were that were really part of the East Side culture to the people. And I want to start out with somebody who was really, uh, you know, I think very close to you. You, you know, I think you've called him a second father, um, and a man who is is really among the waterfowling culture, not only in, in Houston area but I think nationwide. And that man's name is Joe Legault, Mister Joe. Mr. Joe, I mean, I remember going, I mean, he was up in age by the time I ever got to the Barrow Ranch, and that was 1980, 81 time frame, Uh, but he was still sitting there every day, you know, in the shack and talking to everybody and taking the the money and, you know, just, he was one of those characters that I was just fascinated with from the jump. So tell us about your relationship with Joe and and how it really started. Well, Joe Legault... uh, Really, kind of. I don't know if really wasn't like a father. It's more like a great, a great uncle, I guess. Gotcha. But, uh, Joe probably influenced more waterfowl hunters than any single person I know in that area. Uh, he mm-hmm. married into the Barrow family. Oh, I, got, I think in the thirties. Joe, I got that. It was nineteen forty-eight. He married Elizabeth Barrow. Yeah, he he came. To, Came from Dallas to Rice. He played football for Rice in like 1930, uh, and a friend of his, one of his uh, classmates, took him out to uh, to hunt the Barrow Ranch. And from there, he ended up uh, marrying into the family and basically took over the operation after after World War II. Joe was uh, in the service during World War II. Came back, uh, began running the ranch, and. Uh, you know, being a kid in that country, you ran into Joe Legault, and just for some reason, he put up with me. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know you got it primarily goose hunts, correct? On the bear? No, actually, uh, both uh, goose and duck. Goose hunts and duck, on. yeah. Uh, but uh, that, that's where I started really, really learning how to duck hunt uh, and goose hunt, waterfowl hunt was uh, hunting on the Bear Ranch. And, uh, yeah, I guided there for uh, two or three, four seasons, I think, taking hunters there. But Joe was 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 one of those guys, an incredible, incredibly sharp guy and very concerned about conservation. He was, he, he was uh, involved in DU early on and was had a true conservation eth- ethic. 
And uh, he started a lot of things like half-day hunting, uh, you know, rest areas. You know, he, he, he truly cared about the resource and truly cared about, about waterfowl hunters. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot, a lot of, from Joe Legault and, and from his kindness, of, like I said, putting up with a, with a, a young guy who was just uh, loved waterfowling more than anything else and gave me every opportunity to, to follow that dream, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, talking about Ducks Unlimited and Joe Legault, he was, you know, I would, you know, uh, would go, you know, as a kid, you know, my parents and stuff would go to a few different banquets around here and there. Uh, one in Cleveland, Texas. And like we talked about that earlier, been swallowed up by Houston at this point. But I remember mm-hmm. going to that banquet and, and lo and behold, you know, Joe Legault was there. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think he, you know, ventured to a lot of the, the events around the city and uh, really kind of put his money where his mouth is and uh, and helped out and, and, and contributed and donated. And um, one thing I remember too, Joe um, would uh, keep birds at his house, and he would he he had a yes. whole collection of ducks and geese that were cripples or whatever, and he would he would nurse them back to health and give them a home right there right. in front of his house, and and that was fascinating to go over there and see all the different species of birds right there with, at, at Joe's property. Yeah, it, it, it was a menagerie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, snow geese and, it, and specks and pintails and you know, whatever. Right, and uh, I would sit there and just listen to some of those birds. You know, that's the way you learn to call is just yeah. listening to those birds. But uh, but Joe's influence was a lot wider than just you know the Houston area. I mean, I can remember uh, looking at uh, you know outdoor live for Field and Stream or Sports of Field back in the day. There would be ads for Peter's shot shells. And it had Joe Legault on it, and yeah. It, it, yeah. Uh, so it was not like he was just a uh, just a regional, I guess so not really celebrity, but uh, I guess he was. But but he had national reach too, and uh, right. he, he influenced. Uh, you know, there were so many of the the, the really, I guess, uh, uh, more higher profile guides came out of that Barrow Ranch country than, than anywhere else. You know. The- <laughs> The popular term these days in in football is coaching tree, right? Well, Joe had a guide tree, you know. (laughs) Exactly. You know, and and, and we'll talk about some of those people. Um, Here's a a, uh, Baytown guy, uh, Gene Campbell. (laughs) Gene, uh, yeah, Gene and Bobby, his brother, uh, went to high school. Gene was, uh, uh, just to tell you <laughs> what kind of culture I grew up in, in there in Baytown, uh, our uh, high school uh, mascot was uh, was uh, gander geese, a big giant Canada goose. Uh, but yeah, I went to, I went to high school. Uh, Gene was uh, about four or five years, four years ahead of me, I think. And, uh, and his brother, Bobby, and I are the same age, so we all went to high school together, hung out together. They worked. Uh, they worked at one of the marine stores there, and Gene became became a guide uh, out at, at uh, Bear's Ranch, and and, uh, and he's still uh, to this day his oyster bow hunting club is on. Uh, is on what remains of the original Bear Ranch. Right. I've been really wanting to uh, to go over there and hunt with Gene um, just because of, of that fact that it's still you know that's piece of, that's part of the old Barrow. It's it's uh, it's a piece of history, and uh, Gene's one of the best waterfowlers I've ever met. And uh, as all of those guys are, all all those people I've, I I grew up around are just incredibly skilled and smart people. And Gene's uh, Gene's really done 
a lot of incredible work on that property out there. And, and as a lot of people have as the years have gone by and, and uh, learned how to develop and, and nurture you know, native wetlands, uh, natural wetlands, native foods, and, uh, and, uh, but, but yeah, they've, <laughs> Gene's been a, a hallmark in that Chambers County country for, for now, you know, it's hard to believe uh, going on 50 years. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. I mean, uh, here's another one uh, from the from the uh, Joe Lego tree that has got an interesting backstory of how he uh, ended up hooking up with Joe, and that's Jack Holland. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Jack uh, Jack used to po- poach the backside of bears, thinking he could get away with it, till Joe caught him and became, you know, one of the one of the premier guides there on the Bear Ranch. Uh, Jack was. Uh, a very, very good duck hunter. And he was from Louisiana, correct? You know, I don't really know. I know he was uh, actually, uh, his, quote, real job was he's a, he was a teacher up up here in the Humble mm-hmm. area, yeah. believe it or not. <laughs> I know. That's, uh, you, know it, you know, if you look at the list of, of the bear guys, Jack uh, Jack lived in Humble. Right. Which I can relate to because I was right there in Kingwood. Right. Um, and he, he you know, but he also hunted Lake Conroe and, and the Trinity Bottoms as, as well as the Marsh. So, you know, he was pretty diverse in what he did. You know, and uh, let's see. Here's one that 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 you know this man we've talked about, and you've got a special heirloom from you know from his collection. That's Morgan Lafour. Yeah, Morgan Lafour was uh, not a lot of people probably have heard of him because he was he was. Uh, you got to remember some of this stuff happened 60, 70 years ago now. Uh, but Morgan Lafour, his family was had lived in the Trinity River Bottom Country for generations. He started out market gunning. I think market hunting was illegal by then, but he was still doing it, as a lot of people were uh, back in that country. But became ended up becoming a, a guide in the uh, Lower Trinity, hunting the uh, Lake Charlotte country back in there, and uh, took a lot of Houston area people hunting. Morgan was an uh, incredible shot. Bob Brister, actually, there's uh, Bob Brister, the former you know outdoor writer at the at the Chronicle and, and shooting editor for Field and Stream, who I was you know lucky enough to work with for several years. Uh, Brister's book, Shotgunning the Art and Science, has a photograph of Morgan Lafour in it. Uh, Bob said that uh, Morgan was one of the best shots he'd ever seen. Could consistently kill two passing birds with one shot, and when Bob said somebody was a good shot, he knew what he was talking about. Isn't that the truth? And still to this day, the art and science is is one of the greatest shotgunning books ever written, in my opinion. I agree. It was groundbreaking at the time, and and still is. Still and, is. And particularly, waterfowl hunters today could learn a lot from reading that book. Exactly. Yeah, I would encourage anybody in the audience you want to you want to shoot better, read that book by <laughs> read Bob that Brister. Book. And follow exactly. what he says, and you will hit more targets. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but you, you, uh, I got to see this at Spread Oaks. Uh, you've got one of Morgan's old Model Twelve, right? It just so happens, you know, my my family knew the Lafour family, and long story really short, ended up my brother Les and I ended up finding Morgan Lafour's, I think, it was 1948 Model Twelve field grade shotgun for sale online <laughs> with his uh uh with Morgan's nameplate on the gun and uh we now end up both of us shoot Morgan's model 12 
occasionally, and I, I hope to shoot it this weekend. Uh, is there a better pointing shotgun than the I don't think there is. Um, I like my uh, Wingmaster, but that Model 12, had I been... <laughs> Had I had enough money when I was young, I would have bought a Model 12. Exactly. And folks, Shannon was talking about his 870 Wingmaster and uh, that he bought in 1969 and still shoots to this day. And I got the chance to see it. And it's one of those, you know, truly a gun you can look at and, and wish it would tell you what it's been through. You know, it, it could talk, right? That that <laughs> 1969 Wingmaster is uh, just, you know, to me, is one of the, one of the great waterfowling guns I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I've I've, I've just never had the, uh, never found the need to get another one. Uh, it does exactly what I want it to do, and uh, the only time it's broke was when it broke a firing pin. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, one of my all-time favorite guns as well, the 870 Wingmaster. It's a it, it, it's a classic. That's all you can really say about it. And I grew up around those folks shooting, you know, incredible guns. Crack Corn Jackson shot a 410 model. 42. 42, yeah. The guy was just incredibly deadly with it. And we talked about that. A lot of people would be surprised at how good guys were. And a classic a classic example of that is, r- real quickly, one of the market hunters at Lake Surprise, a guy named Forrest McNear, ended up writing an autobiography. It's one of the most incredible books I've ever read. It's called Forrest McNear of Texas. He was a, a market hunter for for Moody back in the 1890s, 1900. He ended up becoming one of the best trap shots in the U.S., was the first Texan to win a gold medal in the Olympics for trap shooting in 1920 in uh, Belgium and is in the Trap Shooting Hall of Fame. That's how good a shots some of these waterfowl guides were. Yeah, exactly. They started out shooting to live, and that that that, that kind of makes you better than most people. Exactly. <laughs> You didn't have money to waste ammo, right? <laughs> exactly, but uh, yeah, you, you could uh, you could learn a lot by just watching some of those guys. Gotcha. And here's here's a name that uh, is part of the Baytown lore for sure. Uh, great decoy carver, Rudy LeCompte. Rudy LeCompte, actually from Louisiana, but but made his name in Baytown as a he was a waterfowl hunter, but uh, carved some of the most incredible decoys. And that was the other thing about Baytown was it was the center of decoy carving in the state of Texas. There were a handful of carvers, first just incredibly first-rate people, Rudy LeCompte being one of them, probably the, the premier decoy carver in Texas. Uh, if you collect decoys uh, and you're looking for a Texas decoy, uh, there are uh, the premier decoys uh, are LeCompte's. There were five or six carvers in this area, Amos Tilton uh, being another one from Old River, but Rudy LeCompte and uh, and a handful of folks who he mentored were the, and are, the premier uh, collectible decoy uh, carvers in Texas. I gotcha, I gotcha. Here's another Baytown name, uh, more famous thanks for a sporting goods store, and that's Jim Nelson. Jim Nelson, Nelson Sporting Goods in Baytown was kind of uh, uh, kind of the center of the universe when I was a kid. Uh, and Jim Nelson, I guess his his claim to fame really is he he and a couple of other guys in Baytown developed the white spread. They were the first ones to to uh, uh, come up with uh, using 
I think they first started using newspapers, but then they switched to diapers, uh, <laughs> which those of us who used diapers as rags back in the day cringe when we think about. But but yeah, he developed uh, the, the white spread for go- for goose hunting, and it he introduced it to the west side of Houston where it really took off. Most people think yeah. that it all started over there for the white goose hunting and stuff, but it was Jim Nelson who, and his cronies that, that started the white spread in, right there in Baytown. Right in, right here in Baytown, and and, uh, and we used it. You know, it became, it just became standard operating procedure. Prior to that, you used silhouettes or, or uh, shells, or and you could never put out more than, you know, maybe a maybe hundred decoys but uh with white spreads you know once you switched from from diapers to <laughs> uh, to banquet cloth and then and the socks it was uh it was a game changer for the goose hunting community and in all of texas in the u.s probably it, it did and it, it really it allowed you to put out 800 a thousand decoys in a, in a short amount of time four or five guys right. man you could have them out in 20 25 minutes i mean that was a mainstay of what we did as guys you know on the west side right uh, was the wind right. sock and hey they still work and, I, and a lot of you know people if you could get your hands on some you should try them because those snows haven't seen that decoy in a long time they've seen the, the newer style sock but to right. me the old wind sock it just looks better you know right. it's bigger and it just waddles more naturally i think it moves different yeah, yeah. you're right you're right and they haven't seen it in in two decades or more now a lot of them haven't so right. it, it works i use them from time to time and it, it it's it's really a game changer sometimes on those birds because they do you know even with adults they have never you know they don't they have never seen it right but that was you know that's just kind of indicative of, of the culture i grew up in there in baytown it was, it was innovators too yeah right that and and you know just waterfowl was everything to so many of those people and uh you know anyway the, the premier duck calls in texas back then were made over in in, uh, in port arthur uh, or groves actually with uh that's another guy i was about to bring up uh, cowboy fernandez yep everybody blew a jensen everybody blew it that, that double reed jensen that some of us were were contrary and went with the triple reed just because i liked that it wasn't as loud but uh but it sounded more like a model duck to me which is what <laughs> <laughs> what I really wanted. And, right, uh, right. Yeah. That, those Jensen double reeds were they and, uh, believe it or not, Fox from Lake Charles were probably the premier calls uh, or the most commonly right. used calls uh, on, on that you said back, back then. We did a great DU Nation uh, segment with uh, with Fox calls and uh, the guy who's been sitting there making those calls for you know, going on 40 years. Um, yeah, check that out. You know, if you haven't seen it, it's, uh, it, it's really, it's really pretty cool. I mean, same little shop that they've been in forever. Right. Right there. Right. But yeah, there were the, you know, the, the Jensen, the, those sure shot double reeds, uh, were hanging on everybody's neck. Oh, I know it. I mean, that, that was the call. Right. You know, I had the double reed version, which I don't know where it is. I can't believe I don't have it. Yeah. I mean, that was the call on the Texas coast was the Jensen. That was period. You know. Right. I mean, you would see some Haydales calls, you right. know, coming in too. But um, the Jensen was, was king. And hey, if people want to buy them, they're still out there in business. I mean, they've just got new ownership and I, and I think they're doing pretty well. You bet. You bet. Uh, but that was, you know, just indicative of kind of the, you know, the, the culture that was over there on that east side. Uh, it was, uh, waterfowl was a major, waterfowl and wetlands were 
were yeah. in everybody's blood over right. there. Still are. Like you said, you know, I know Ducks Unlimited has done a lot of work all around Texas, you know, really trying to restore a lot of, of the habitat that's been lost, bring it back to, you know, what its former glory and, and really, you know, keep those traditions alive. You know, we've really worked hard to, to do that. Uh, here's a name, uh, you know, everybody in the Houston area knew this guy's name back in those days, and he had some very interesting uh, dogs that used to run, and that's, and that's Forrest West. <laughs> Forrest was larger than life. One of the more fascinating men I ever met in my life. Uh, I ended up, actually worked, did a few guide trips for him back uh, back in the day, too. So, But yeah, Forrest was uh, inter- an interesting man. <laughs> Kind of straddled the world between the uh, the, the timber hunting and, and the coastal hunting. He guided on. I met him through uh, one of one of my friend's fathers worked with him at Diamond Shamrock uh, Refinery uh, before Forrest uh, gave that up and and became a guide full time. Grew up around Forrest. Actually leased leased some property from Forrest, and uh, he was uh, the stories that uh, both Bob Brister and Joe Doggett wrote in the Houston Chronicle about Forrest kind of kind of introduced him to the world but uh forrest uh was one of the best shots one of the best duck hunters one of the best duck callers i ever met in my life yeah, his son jim continues to guide to this day but you know forrest had uh outsized personality his dogs did too and they reflected their master uh, he had one named uh, uh Bo, who was probably i don't know close to 100 pounds but Bo, Bo is an incredible dog but had a temper uh, kind of like Forrest, and uh, would occasionally just decide that uh, he he would pick up any duck, but uh, occasionally he would decide to eat one. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's and, what I heard about uh, Bo. You know, and don't don't mess with Bo. You know, when he was when not, he was working, right? Don't put your don't don't mess with Bo. Just like you never messed with Forrest, you would draw back a nub, as my dad would say. But the confrontations between. Uh, Forrest and Bo were legendary. <laughs> Two very uh, uh, confrontational people. <laughs> <laughs> they were made for each other, you know. Well, right, most folks wouldn't, you know, they would have gotten rid of a dog like that. But I well, mean, exactly. Forrest hunted him every day, you know. Right, and he was an incredible dog. You let him do his job, and don't get your hand too close. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I want I want to close it out with a couple of names. You've mentioned them already. People, a couple of guys you worked with who who both wrote a lot about the East Side, and like I said, who were along with you. I read just about everything that they ever wrote in the Chronicle. I think. Um, <laughs> and the first one is Joe Doggett. Joe, probably one of the the best pure writers I ever met in my life. He was could tell a story. And just, I think he loved the characters that he met and tried and and did just a heck of a job in translating that to the word and entertaining and informing readers. And that's that's what our job was about. That's what our job was about. The, the uh, I spent, I guess, I worked with Joe for 17, 18 years before he retired. And uh, I, I learned a lot from him. I learned... Uh, uh, enjoyed reading his work and uh and like i said he one of the best storytellers i've ever run into uh and the second name we talked about his book is his knowledge of shotgunning the legendary bob brister right it was uh it was a real it was a real honor and pleasure to work with bob spend some time with him uh 
he, like like me, grew up in a small waterfowling community. I mean, he grew up in East Texas in Marshall. And uh, I learned a ton from him. And as a matter of fact, uh, between him, Hart Stillwell, um, a couple of other writers, Indian, uh, certainly influenced me in my career, uh, probably as much or more than anybody else. It was a, a heck of a shot, a heck of an innovator. Like I said, that book, uh, his shotgunning book, is uh, second to none. And for folks who are just interested, there's a, he did a book with Jack Cowan called The Golden Crescent, which is a, a, a compilation of, of, of paintings, Cowan paintings and Brister stories. So fiction or semi-fiction in some cases, but... Uh, if people would read that, they'd get a lot of insight into Bob Brister and, uh, and into the world that uh, that he lived through. But I was really lucky to really lucky to be able to work with with those guys. And, uh, uh, and the great thing about uh, I guess the staff at the Chronicle was we all had our we were all different. We all had our different uh, points of view and our different interests. And I think that's what made it interesting to the readers is uh it wasn't all the same right and another guy that i can't leave out but i'm i want to get him on for his own podcast we're, we're going to dive deep into the west side and that's doug pike sure um you know doug i, I interviewed him for an article i wrote in wildfowl on on uh, called the snowman uh he's talking about the development of, of snow guides on the west side and um yeah he's he's another guy that was just there was a guide over there you know and really really talked about it but i know you know just just the little bit of time i've spent with him he had to have been uh you know another one of those you know great characters oh yeah it's it, it, like i said it was interesting it was a really interesting dynamic and we all we all went our own ways uh we very seldom co- coordinated any any anything but uh but we all had our different uh areas of interest that, that and uh, and i think that's what uh that's what made it interesting to readers and uh, at least i hope it did and uh uh, yeah, enjoyed. You know, I think I worked worked with Doug for probably seventeen, eighteen years. But yeah, it was always it was always an interesting interesting world. And, you know, people think you always you know you spend you work with people you spend a lot of time with. We never really got to spend that much time together, but uh, in the field. But we did in the office, and uh, but we shared a lot of the same uh, contacts, and uh, it was. It was an interesting world, and I'm I'm glad uh, I was part of it. Uh, glad I'm still a part of it. Yeah, man, I'm glad you're a part of it. Like I said, we got to, <laughs> we got to live a lot of that through your writing, man. It was uh, it's really really great stuff. I, I just want to close this out uh, with you, Shannon. Just uh, you know, something we do with a lot of folks. Just you know, throughout all those years, uh, just think back, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but just think about a you know one of the most memorable hunts that you ever had you know, um, in your lifetime on the east side. Does, it, does one hunt in particular ever jump out at you? Oh, boy. It's just a whirlwind of... <laughs> yeah. I know it's hard for me, too, man. I can't really think of one, you know, but it's, uh, there, you know, just... Uh, let's narrow it down. A snow goose hunt. A snow goose hunt. Bear's Marsh. Bear's Marsh. Probably, you know, I don't know, 74, 75. People don't realize that that you know a lot of people don't realize snow goose spend their whole winter in the marsh until rice came along in the late late 
part of the year, uh, geese would get back in the marsh and start hitting that three-corner grass, back in the deep marsh. And they'd be on feeds back in there. And I remember one morning humping in into the marsh. They were on a feed on the backside of Barrow Ranch in three-corner grass. And me and, I don't know, three or four other guys humped rags through that marsh back out and, and set up around a bunch of uh, uh, muskrat mounds. And we had probably one of the most incredible goose shoots I've ever had in my life. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a foggy day, but it still had a little wind, which is really rare. Usually fog, you don't have any wind. But we had a good south wind and fog. The geese would just come out of the out of the fog, right hanging right over the decoys, and it was it was probably probably the best goose shoot I I've ever had in my life. You know, birds at twenty yards with us leaning up against um, muskrat mounds in the marsh. But I also remember that hunt having to carry all those birds out, and <laughs> <laughs> that was brutal. Just getting in there was brutal. Carrying them out was worse. You know, this was back in the day of the five five goose limit. Trust me, five geese. We also shot, you know, several ducks too. Yeah, pintails would love those spreads. Right, pintails would work those work those spreads, particularly back in that marsh. Uh, and so, five geese and five or six ducks. And, and a bunch of soaked rags in the Barrow Marsh. I remember the pain, but I remember the pleasure, too. It was a uh, cost-benefit analysis. Uh, I came out ahead. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right, man. It just, it, it, it's hard to describe it, you know, once again to people. You know, sink it up to your knees might be, you know, a way that you could say that you could talk about that mud out there. Yeah. You know, it, it's a, it was uh, uh, duck hunting's almost always been a young man's sport, and uh, you do not find a lot of hardcore duck hunters past about sixty, and that's the reason. But uh, but yeah, that was probably one of the best uh, one of the best goose hunts I ever was on in my life, and uh, just with with a handful of good friends in an incredible place. And just one of those mornings you can close your eyes and see 50 years later. Man, incredible, Shannon. Man, I can't thank you enough for being on the Ducks Unlimited podcast, man. It's, it's, it's been great talking about these people and places. You know, it's unbelievable. Hey, John, thank you. You have to realize that there are dozens and dozens of places like, like that around this country uh, where there are people who whose lives are, are hugely influenced by those birds and those wetlands that they live around. And that's right. I was just lucky. I was just lucky enough to to grow up in one. Yeah, that's it. All of this exists because there's ducks and geese in the world, you know? Right. And people that love to hunt them. It's those birds and it's those places that uh, that make it what it is. So let's hope we can keep them. Yeah, let's hope we can keep them. That's, that's our mission, you know, and, you know, to fill the skies with waterfowl today, tomorrow, and forever. You know, we, that's what we're trying to do here at Ducks Unlimited for sure. Well, uh, keep up the great work. <laughs> we need it. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Well, once again, folks, thanks for tuning in to the DU Podcast, and thanks for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time. 
Stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. 